0: Welcome to The Doctor is Out, a podcast hosted by Dr. Wait a second, Andre. Hold it for a moment. We're not supposed to have an episode this week. We're supposed to close the first season with 10 episodes. This would be 11. 10 is a neat number. 11 not a neat number. That's how the biz works. This isn't a game of pickleball. We have Eric Topol this week. We can't not squeeze him in. You should know this. I'm just here to provide my deep, calming voice at the beginning of each episode. You're supposed to introduce the guest. Yeah, that's that's right. I guess we're going to have to complete our first season with 11 episodes, Andre. Sharif, why don't you just tell the audience what to expect in the future? Yeah, that's probably a good idea. So audience, first let me say thank you for all your support this first season. The kind emails, the warm wishes, the helpful suggestions. It's been a lot of fun, and I'm quite excited for what season two has in store. We're going to go on a break for a couple months and start back up with an interseason in June where we'll have monthly episodes before returning to our bi weekly schedule with the main season in the fall. If you'd like to make any suggestions or comments, good or bad, feel free to reach out to me at infotdio.org. And of course, thank you to my very good friend, Andre Borzak, for his lovely introductions. Thank you, sir, for lending your voice every episode. It's why I pay you the big bucks, man uh sharif
1: you don't pay me anything
0: yes but it's the thought that counts anyway our guest today is the director of the scripps research translational institute and one of the most impactful voices in medicine dr eric topol if you don't know who he is google him or just wait five seconds we have a real treat of having a giant in medicine with us today He's a cardiologist by training, the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, the editor-in-chief of Medscape and TheHeart.org. He's one of the top 10 most cited researchers in medicine of all time. He has been a leading voice in medicine for decades with almost 400,000 Twitter followers. Most recently, this past year, he's been an integral public health voice on the COVID 19 pandemic. And he is the author of three bestsellers on the future of medicine, including most recently, Deep Medicine How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. Dr. Eric Topol, thank you for graciously taking your time to join me today.
1: Sure. No, I'm happy to be with you. I know this is an outgrowth of when I did Stanford. Medical Grand Rounds, and and you talked about your podcast, I said, I'll be happy to join you. And here we are.
0: Yeah, thanks for that. Very gracious of you to be so championing in that way. For my first question, how would you describe your current day job to a layman? You wear so many hats as a scientist, a thought leader, a physician, and an author. Where do you find yourself most involved these days?
1: Well, my favorite day it's on Thursday when I'm in clinic and seeing patients. So that'll be that'll be tomorrow for me, and I have a very busy, very busy clinic. Um, but then the rest of the days are spread out from you know meeting with my crew to uh, uh, having lots of Zoom meetings, <laughs> uh, re- reading a lot, uh, you know, planning projects, uh, editing papers, you know. A, a sundry of things that are more research related. Um, these days, you know, kind of heavy in the COVID world, but still my primary interest is really in AI and medicine. Um, yeah, so, you know, it, it, it's pretty much I have a you know, 20, 25% clinical time, and the rest of it's doing research, but it's doing research to try to uh, uh, impact patient care. It's not just pure research
0: with everything you do, I would have never expected you would have time to still have a patient panel. That's really impressive. Has that been the case consistently throughout your career?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think before I came to San Diego back in 06, I did procedures, a lot of procedures, uh, in coronary intervention, you know, stent procedures. But I stopped that when I came here because I was going to put more time into research. Uh, but no, I've always had uh, patient uh, clinic uh, time. It's it's to me the most important part to keep not only a pulse on the patients. Some of them I followed through decades, all the way back to my University of Michigan uh, faculty time in the in the uh, 80s. So uh, you know, I love that, and um, that's what is important for me to know what's the unmet need out there. You know, what what how we can improve things, and uh, yeah, it's it's the most important uh, thing I get to that's do. That's
0: amazing you talk about your patients similar to how Bob talks about his patients. It seems that it's really grounding for both of you and makes him. he also said it was his favorite part of this week. Um, you built the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and what its mission is and how it fits in within Scripps?
1: Right. So when I came at the end of '06, so it's now 14 plus years ago, the idea was that, um, there was no human genetics genomics institute within San Diego, which is a life science one of the hubs of the mm-hmm. of the country. And uh, I was really and always have been very into you know gen- genetics and and certainly genomics as that has been taking off. Uh, so that was the mission, and uh, it was initially a joint uh, collaboration between the health system and the Research Institute. The Research Institute is a storied place that's gonna have a hundred year celebration uh, in 23, 2023. Um, and it's, you know, one of the, well, I think it's the not only the largest biomedical research institute in the country, but it's certainly um, one that has uh, the highest NIH support right. and, and one that publishes papers in the leading journals and life science, you know, every week. So to me, it was an ideal fit. That's why I came here. In fact, you know, at the time I was also considering Stanford, but I wound up here. Uh, they were really excited about this idea. And what happened, interestingly, was within months after coming here, uh, we added a whole nother layer to not just genetics, genomics, but digital. Because uh, I happened to be at a a conference um, that Qualcomm had organized the leading wireless, uh, leading company in San Diego. And there was a a, a, this is now february of 07 and somebody was talking uh, in the front of the room about a smartphone that would be connected to the internet and it would have a camera and the people were i was sitting in the back and i kind of woke up what what's this and people were arguing why would you have a camera on a smartphone (laughs) because that's so silly you have these really good now point and click cameras why would you do that so uh, all of a sudden a light bulb went off and i said wait a minute now we're talking about a medical uh, you have a sensor essentially a sensor camera you can add other sensors you're on the internet it's on your phone i mean oh my gosh and that of course was not till november that year when the iphone came uh, along but basically it, it was a eureka moment and then i realized we need to be both genomic and digital if we're going to try to advance this field of individualized medicine Then the last chapter of this, fast forward, is that um, because we were so heavily NIH supported, over time, it made much more sense to reside fully in the research institute, not rather than, we still work with the health system. But now, um, then we had to kind of rename ourselves and be, so Scripps Research has three institutes. We're we're one of them. It has the original Scripps Research, uh, Basic Science Institute, it has a thing called Calibre, which is a drug discovery institute, and the one that I was uh, able to get started. Um, so basically, we have campuses both in California, La Jolla, as well as as well as in Florida. And we're, we basically are a, a mosaic or a spectrum of three institutes. And uh, I get to lead one of them. And I also have a, a role in the overall um, script research uh, institution, which is Trying to change the way wave of the future of medicine through many different uh, means. You know, drug discovery is one institute, but also all that science that's in immunology, structural biology, uh, all the things that are really having a big impact in the pandemic, which has been exciting for me.
0: What do you think prepared you most to build out the translational institute? You're, I'm, I have so many questions on your background and like all the different projects you've worked on you've you know um a lot obviously in precision medicine ai and healthcare and yet your research was often in cardiovascular medicine how did you find yourself in this area and and then what do you think prepared you to build an entire organization around it
1: well you know we get pigeonholed in our our path and uh, a lot of people still say well he's a cardiologist what does he know about mm-hmm. whatever else but, you know, for for many years, um, I tried to get broadened in terms of um, learning from cardiovascular, but applying that learning. So like for today, you know, this J&J trial mm-hmm. data for the vaccine came out. Well, I had the fortune of leading many large clinical trials, so I can interpret data mm-hmm. from a clinical trial, you know, pretty well. Um, there having been, having done things in cardiology doesn't mean you can't work in other areas. And in fact, you know, it brings just some grounding in some kind of also some outside view. So I, I uh, enjoy getting into other areas and some of them, frankly, are more exciting now because cardiology, not that it, it's, it's, uh, it can't get better, but a lot of other areas um, have just even more vast, unmet needs for improvement. So, Part of the individualized medicine theme, which is what our institute's about, has been that we want to, you know, make medicine far more uh, accurate—not just precise, but also accurate—and understand the uniqueness of each person, and whether it's their heart or whether it's their brain or you know whatever part of their body to preserve their health. We need to understand that each person shouldn't just be treated like a cattle herd; that we need to, you know, zoom in on. What is it about them that makes them at risk, poses them at risk? And how can we prevent their illness or how can we manage it better? Because we need to respect our individuality.
0: That's incredible. I could not agree more. Um, I want to actually put a pin in this. I want to circle back on uh, how you found yourself to be a voice in medicine and uh, been able to spearhead so much. um, And particularly as it pertains to any advice to trainees who might be interested in similar areas, but I want to take a step back and figure out how you first started on this path. So, you know, you did your IM residency at UCSF and uh, you were at Hopkins for your cardiology fellowship. Um, Back then, did you think you might not practice medicine full time? Did you think you would do all these incredible things?
1: Well, I always wanted to practice medicine. Uh, I I couldn't even think of anything but, but that, Uh, but I got excited, uh, actually, when I was at UCSF, what, the reason I wound up in cardiology. Um, I had a mentor, of Chatterjee, who is a legend. Um, he uh, was really, um, I think, uh, a deep impact on me because um, I actually went there thinking I'd spend my career in diabetes and endocrinology because my father had suffered so much from that. Um, but he convinced me that this was the right thing to do, to go into cardiology, because if you think back, this is 1980, 81, 82, where you know it was the first uh, balloon coronary angioplasty, the first clot dissolving for heart attack, and uh, you know all these things that were coming along that basically formed the field of interventional cardiology. So he got me excited about that. I wound up doing that as a career goal. Uh, But then when I left uh, training, my first job for seven years was at University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. And I uh, ultimately ran the cath lab there. And um, it was great. I mean, we, we, we became the heart attack center of one of them, of the world, where we had people flying in every day with on helicopters to get their arteries open. Uh, We had TPA to go where we took it out to the Uh, flew it out to these, you know, distant remote places, and then brought the patients back to get them in good shape. So, you know, it's always been an exciting, uh, different phases of an exciting uh, medical career for me. I've been very lucky.
0: Yeah, it seems like you were just following what you found the most exciting in that moment, and it led you down these different paths. Were you doing any wet lab work at that time?
1: no um i really wasn't i mean then uh it was a lot of more clinical research uh at that time and then basically starting up these what to ultimately turned out to be large clinical trials like gusto and 41, patient heart attack trial in 18 countries uh so yeah with that part was more the clinical trial yeah. phase and yeah. it wasn't until you know really coming to uh La Jolla were getting more involved with wet lab stuff. I mean, I've always watched that space carefully. I did some in Cleveland work with some, you know, genomics labs, but I didn't get into it myself more until, uh, you know, these years here at Scripps.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Oftentimes, um, research, at least in medical school or residency, can be thought of this thing you might have to do in order to get into a good medical school or good residency or good fellowship or get that grant to be promoted in academia, um, which is unfortunate sometimes. How did you approach research? Because I feel like you're obviously somebody who absolutely crushed it with the contributions you made um, in clinical research and then some. What do you think sets you up for success Um, And would you have any advice to trainees who are looking to get involved in research in an impactful way? I couldn't imagine somebody better to ask, honestly.
1: Well, you're very kind. I mean, I think the, uh, you kind of touched on it earlier is try to find things that were really exciting Mm -hmm. and then just get as deep into it as possible and trying to do, you know, it isn't like things failed. There were plenty of, you know, research projects and initiatives. On. look I got involved with a lot of large clinical trials which were negative and that's very dejecting when you put so much work in and in fact that was kind of why I decided no more clinical trials for a while because it was there were so many were a bust but I think you know you got to swing for the fences you don't want to do this little incremental s- stuff because you know it doesn't really it, the 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 risk reward ratio isn't isn't great so you want to try to take on important initiatives that at least have a good chance to move the needle, you know, to really have some impact. Um, I think part part of the problem is too many people wind up in research get disenchanted because they're working on relatively, you know, arcane, small matters. Not, they don't, they're not taking enough risk or thinking big that, you know, to a fault. That's what I've done is try to come up with, you know, try to, Chase big ideas. Uh, you know, when going back to the time when we decided we'd be both a genomic and digital medical institute, I mean that some people thought that was crazy. Why would you center your strategy on a smartphone medicine? You know that's crazy stuff. But it turned out it was a good call because you know look look what's happened over the years where all these sensors and having so much you know data on any given individual uh, now so much data we can't even handle it so you know i I think it's just uh, some of its luck mm-hmm. too you know i as I already mentioned you know having a great mentor um, i um, who' changed my career path I mean I think these are some things i you know that had uh, uh, extraordinary impact
0: do you think that the research that you did is what Helped you have the credibility to become a voice in medicine. I guess back then, how did you find yourself with that voice and developing that voice?
1: Yeah, it's interesting you like asked before that. Before the you days know, I think of Twitter, you know. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, but, I mean, when you do a lot of research that gets in, you know, high-profile publications and appears to be impactful, like you mentioned, new drugs or you know, a lot of things that that changed our understanding of some aspects of heart disease, cardiovascular disease, you wind up, you know, becoming a resource. Uh, But I think what happened uh, was uh, the books that I wrote um, were a a big deal. The reason why I had no idea they would be, but um, what happened then was uh, you wind up uh, with a much different, you know, we live in a microcosm of the medical space. And who would have thought, you know, you should, to write for the public, and to have, um, you know, a, a much broader, um, you know, readership, and and people who know what you think and what you, you know, what you're made of, kind of thing. So I think the books really made a big difference, and I try to encourage all of our people, you know, our trainees and our young faculty, to write for the public, write op-eds. I mean. The first time i wrote an op-ed was back in you know 04 with the ViX crisis yep. and that was yep. yet another thing that taught me a lesson you know that wow you can reach a lot of people um, with things like that so nowadays you're seeing many more physicians who are writing op-eds uh, in newspapers or on websites and that's a good thing and the websites that are not for just the medical community but for right. the public so right. I like that. I think we need to communicate much more. We need to crowd out all the bad information out there. Um, so, you know, I, I, I was, again, you know, early on to that because I started doing that, what, 16 years ago, 17 years ago with an op ed. And now it's not uncommon to see scientists and, and physicians, clinicians writing those things. Um, I, I ho- I'm hoping to see much more of that in the years ahead. That's
0: very cool. This actually naturally transitions to a, a question I had because I wanted to talk about the COVID pandemic, but actually more reflect on your role over the past year. Obviously, in many ways, you know, this has been a very tough year. You know, over half a million Americans have died, and two and a half million fellow human beings have passed but like you were touching upon, there's a bigger story about ourselves and the challenges we face as a society communicating, accepting science and truth. And um, you've been such an important voice being able to spearhead the effort against frankly misinformation. I was curious how you've just been feeling like what it's been like for you to be a a voice like this uh, during the pandemic Have you discovered any lessons along the way, or do you feel like there are any lessons we should learn from the pandemic in your journey this past year?
1: Yeah, it's been quite a journey. Well, you know, I should remind you, I had no training in infectious disease or this area, so it was a lot of autodidactic talking to, you know, experts, interviewing them, um, a lot of networking, and a lot of reading. I mean, my gosh, I read every day. It's, uh, It's one of my, you know, major... I get most of my information uh, that I
0: find the most relevant and interesting and up-to-date on the pandemic from your Twitter feed. Hands down. Yeah, oh,
1: definitely. Oh, wow. I, I I really appreciate that. I do, put, you know, I, I put a lot of work into it. It's not just to to post the share, but also that's how I keep track of everything. I decided um, back 10 years ago, 11 years ago, that instead of trying to file things, what I do is use the hashtags and the Twitter um, oh, posts to be my archive. So basically I post it so that I can find it. And, you know, that's basically if I want to look up, what does this variant do with this vaccine? I mean, I can, I can look up anything just through my Twitter um, stuff. So it, it, it's a dual purpose. You know, one is I'm trying to share what I think is relevant information. There's a lot of things I read that are junk that I don't share. Uh, so uh, I tweet too much, but it's mainly because that's how I'm basically um, uh, curating it for my own good. Um, and uh, if I, I think it's been helpful because I've learned a lot. It's a way to kind of keep my head down and deal with this pandemic. It's like a coping mechanism. And since I'm an information junkie, it fulfills my addiction to information. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm really um, glad that I can help contribute. I mean, I had to say, what can I do to help? And we've done some research, genomics and digital and the things that we can do at our institute. But another dimension was to try to help with new and good information out there. Uh,
0: Eric, were you a writer before you entered medicine? Were you always like a storyteller?
1: (laughs) Well, I don't know about a storyteller. I've had to learn to be a better storyteller uh, from listening to others. Uh, But I think writing, I've always done better writing than I have um, verbally to express myself. That's why I wind up writing all these papers and books. And yeah, I mean, I I like to write. I mean, I remember when I was a little kid, I used to, instead of talking to my parents, I write them notes, letters, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it's always been kind of a, a favorite way for me to communicate.
0: Yeah, very cool. Also taking stock over the other areas you found yourself in by virtue of your position. You know, you were uh, called upon by Jeremy Hunt, a prominent British MP, to review the NHS workforce. Um, you mentioned earlier that you testified and wrote op-eds regarding Viox when the safety concerns were first coming to light and then obviously got withdrawn from the market back then. Um, you are involved in wireless health. What do you think prepared you most for that? Um, and would you have any advice to trainees who feel like they might be involved in these different areas and want to be a voice in medicine, but don't feel prepared, don't feel confident, or don't feel um, like they can understand how to develop their voice in these different areas. Um, tangential areas of medicine that feel like it's super fast moving they feel like it's like a whirlwind listen how it is for me like affecting them but they sort of feel in it as opposed to spearheading it or leading it in some way
1: you know in your question i think you also had the answer <laughs> um i think i think confidence is the big issue so um when i work with a lot of young people to try to um get them you know, their careers to go in high gear and get them to be successful. Um, what I've noticed is the people that tend to do really well, they have enough confidence, whether it's been bolstered or it's intrinsic, and they, they just are gonna, you know, go for it and they're gonna, whatever it takes. Those who are, you know, just lacking that, they just don't have enough self-confidence in terms of that their ability to do this. They're often the ones who, you know, you, you, you they're going to wind up bailing out of research. Um, they're just not, um, they're, it's not a matter of being uh, uh, overconfident. I mean, that's a different matter. Mm-hmm. I've seen mm-hmm. that too. But mm-hmm. rather, you know, one that I'm going to stay with this, uh, I persevere, I can. Everyone can be a great researcher. I'm convinced of that and or contribute in really important contributions if they're in the right environment they have access to the data and the projects anyone can be a really good researcher but the ones who tend to really succeed are the ones that have this attitude that I can do this or they develop that along the way and the ones who don't you know you can lock them up in a room with all the same data that you give to the other person and they just can't get through it they just they have this kind of, um, I've seen it this this um, data collector syndrome where, but they never they they never go for the you know across the goal line, and then you you know you have to like do root canal work to try to get them to finish the project or write the paper or you know whatever. So, you know, I do think you have to have some pretty good communicative skills in terms of writing or presentations. That's important, but that's also part of confidence that the people who, you know, can stand up and present their work and do it in a way that's um, ca- captivating, including passion um, and and summarizing, you know, in a succinct way, the, the results, the meaningful results, that's all part of... Um, I think, uh, in the spectrum of mm. confidence. Did you
0: encounter any obstacles towards developing uh, confidence yourself?
1: Oh, well, sure. You, you have days, you have times when you feel like you're, you know, abject failure, but you no, know, overall, it isn't like in one moment in time. It's, a, you know, kind of a trend plot is that you, you, the more you are successful, the more you get confident and you have to get over that hump. You have to be willing to get over that initial hump. And if you have a failed project early on, you might lose it and you just have to have a a mentor to just say wait no no just let's reboot here you know every, everyone can do this if you if you you know went to medical school you can be a great researcher if you want to be um but um you have to really stick with it and you know uh, you have to find your way into something that's really exciting you know, a lot of times i i meet people young people who are they're doing it, but they're not really into it. You know, they're just not excited about what they're doing. And it might not be that they wouldn't be excited; they just aren't not a good match up with what the projects they're working on. You know, and the people they're working with. You know, it's kind of um, uh, you know a, a something that can be modulated. I think
0: mm-hmm. over the years, you've been largely in academia and research did you ever consider any opportunities in industry and um, in hindsight, would you have explored that any differently?
1: I've never considered, Mm. I will never consider it. Mm. uh, Just because um, many, you know, kind of opportunities along those ways. But I don't feel like I have the same uh, freedom of thinking and, Mm. and, and work if you work in a company no matter what company it is you're kind of you have a mission uh and it's it's a different mission so i like to help with companies either as an advisor or you know i'm on the board of one that is a dexcom a glucose sensor company but but i don't really want to ever live in a company because for me it's a it's it's a lot of restraint on what i can work on and do and you know, then it, you just can't be involved with patient care the same way. Mm-hmm. It, it basically would be uh, an, an abrogation of all the things that I love to do. Um, and I, so, I I I think I have the good a good balance where I can intersect with, collaborate with, but um, you know, preserve what I enjoy doing the most, which is trying to be um, innovative and and work with a lot of young people and try to inspire them to to have a successful uh, career and hand over the baton and, you know, have them be the leaders of the future. Mm.
0: That's really insightful. I, I appreciate having that. I feel like we get a lot of industry people on our podcast. So this is such a nice, refreshing perspective. What do you think might be next for you? Or is it hard to say?
1: Uh, well, I'm hoping to do a lot more in the AI space because I think it's still the earliest days of that. And I, that's the most exciting area. You know, I can see through that we'll get through the pandemic in the months ahead, and I'm excited about that. Um, so, you know, that's been a kind of at least temporary um, uh, detour from what I'm most uh, interested in. But I actually think, you know, w- when I did the book D Medicine, um, it, it, charted a path where we can improve our uh, human to human bond, you know, the, the, the uh, patient-doctor relationship. And yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: I, I want to go after that. That's my goal is not just make medicine more accurate and streamline and use these AI tools to achieve the things that are short-term, but the longer term, which is, um, you know, making, uh, the, getting the gift of time restoring the intimacy the trust the presence the things that my close friend abraham verghese uh, yeah into the presence you know uh i'm we we become very close because we have similar values and i guess you know we're old dogs in a way that we kind of know what medicine used to be like in
0: in the 70s Mm -hmm.
1: um Mm -hmm. we want to get that back and go beyond that even so uh it's going to take work but that that's what i'm going to work on in the years ahead
0: That's very exciting. It's very exciting. Yeah, I feel like there's often this idea that AI and human are mutually exclusive in medicine. And I think you've been so important in sort of breaking that wall down.
1: Yeah, I think it's counterintuitive. People have this anti-technology view that that's depersonalizing when in fact, this is our best shot to actually restore humanity in medicine, which has been eroding for, for decades.
0: Do you see any other big next frontiers in medicine?
1: Uh, well, certainly, you know, CRISPR is the other big one. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, genome editing is going to have uh, enormous impact. Uh, I'm really looking forward to reading uh, Walter Isaacson's new book on code breakers. It's coming out any day. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm just as much excited about that. It's just that... Um, that's going to be a a relatively slow rollout with, you know, starting in rare diseases. um, But it's going to have a major transformative impact. I mean, even in diagnostics, CRISPR is being used. Some of the rapid home tests that we'll be using for, for the pandemic will be CRISPR based. So that one is equally as exciting. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that we'll be involved with that too.
0: Very cool. Very cool. So, Eric, for my last question, uh, we have this tradition now of ending our episodes with a segment called Picks, where we have our guests recommend something they enjoyed recently. You just mentioned Walter Isaacson's book. That could be an example. It could be an article. It could be a TV show, a song, movie, another podcast, whatever you would like. Is there something you came across recently that you found compelling that you might want to recommend to the audience?
1: Uh Let's see. I don't know. <laughs> I can't think of something offhand that was compelling, um, except that book I just mentioned. I I read the preview of it in the Wall Street Journal. Uh,
0: Maybe you could share yesterday. a little bit more about what that book is supposed to be about.
1: Yeah. So Codebreakers is, uh, you know, there's going to be a several books about um, CRISPR and genome editing, but this one is coming by one of the masters uh, of, you know writing uh, nonfiction, and uh, I got to know Walter a bit, and he, he's a real gem. But anyway, he spent a lot of time with Jennifer Dudna uh,
0: mm-hmm. at
1: Berkeley, and uh, he really uh, got deep into it. And what I am excited about this is, this is a hard area to transmit uh, to the public. This is, uh, you know, it's pretty high-techy about, you know, the different ways that you can um, edit genomes um, and edit RNA and edit the epigenome, and you know. So I am going to be really interested in in what he has to um, uh, how he ha- how he does it because he's he's one of the finest uh, authors out there. I mean, I have great admiration for um, people who can write nonfiction in in a way that makes it as you got to earlier the storytelling. So uh, Sid Mukherjee is one of my all-time favorites and he obviously he's written a few great books uh the emperor of all maladies and the gene uh which uh, i i had reviewed that book for uh for cell uh you know and he he's just you know one of my favorites uh, another one that caught my eye um just today is uh, another journalist who's a favorite of mine and why i i, I mentioned journalists is because they often become so good because they're translating for the public, and we all can learn from them in, in medicine. So Carl Zimmer, uh, who's also a friend, he has a new book about life coming out uh, next week, and uh, I'm supposed to get a copy of that, so I got a lot of reading to do in the next few weeks. So books would be my thing, I guess. Um, I, I, you know, I, I can't say too much about podcasts. Yesterday, I did my first clubhouse. I'm still not so sure about Clubhouse. I'm gonna check out a few more before I make a final verdict. Um, you know, I I'll explore, I'll always try something once, right? Um, but no, I don't know. I, I don't know if I have other I have things to offer. That's
0: amazing that. as it is. Yeah, thank you so much. That that's really helpful. I have to check code breakers out, and um it's really cool getting that perspective from you, you're very very well read (laughs) um dr eric topol thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today really appreciate it
1: oh i really enjoyed it it was a fun conversation thanks for having me and i'll look forward to hearing more about your podcast and and your great following
0: that does it for this episode of the doctor is out thanks for joining us if you enjoyed this episode and would like to support us, please leave a review on Apple Podcast or whichever podcast platform you use. And if there's something you found you really liked or didn't like or would like to make a suggestion, feel free to reach out by email at info@tdio.org. At